Heavenly Father, we desire to magnify your name this morning. We want you to be lifted on high. We want your son, Jesus Christ, to be known here in this place as the Savior of the world. We want to worship the Holy Spirit that comes to us and convicts us and comforts us and enables us to gather here in this place by His power and actually worship You. Father, if we have not come hungry, forgive us. Forgive us for not seeing how desperately we need You and Your Son, Jesus Christ, to be satisfied. If we have not come thirsty, Father, show us our thirst and quench it by the saving grace that comes through the blood of Jesus Christ. Father, we desire to hear you this morning. We've gathered for that purpose. We will open your word, and by your grace, you will use a sinner like me to proclaim the gospel of grace to those you've gathered here. Be gracious with us, I pray, as we engage in this most holy endeavor to the honor and glory of your name now and forever. Amen. Amen. Good morning. If you have a Bible, open up to John chapter 5, please. The Gospel of John chapter 5. I was talking with a brother before the service today and talking about what a great passage it is. And I realized, you know what? Every passage in this book is great. So every passage is going to be one that we want to feed on. Every passage is one I'm going to be excited to preach on. And I pray every passage is one you're going to want to hear. You want to say, what did he say next? What did he do next? We want to know these things. And if you're hungry, you'll want to know. Last night we had a rare opportunity to have an extra hour sleep. And that means I will hold you accountable to that. You cannot sleep during this time. You should never be tired when the Word of God is being preached first. But you have an extra hour sleep. All right? All right. So we'll all stay awake. I will not fall asleep, I promise. In the first four chapters, John chapter 1 through 4, the, the gospel writer, the apostle John, is revealing Jesus Christ. He's revealing who he is, that he is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah. He's revealing his power. And we had this, the, the testimony, we had it in the John the Baptist, Christ himself is testifying. We had it as baptism. We had the Father testifying to the Son. We had the Holy Spirit descending upon the Son. We have Jesus Christ out teaching the multitudes. We have him healing with signs and wonders and miracles. And so there's this great buildup through chapter 4 of who this man really is, this Son of God, this Jesus, the Messiah. And we get to chapter 5, and for the next few chapters, the focus is still on Christ, but the Apostle John begins to open up the great hostility and the great rebellion that exists in the heart of man. And he begins to show us clearly how Jesus' own people, how the religious ruling elite, those who were supposed to be leading the people of God, hate him most. They hate him most. And they go from being, I guess we could say, cautiously curious about this miracle worker from Nazareth to fixing their mind upon how can we kill him? How can we get rid of him? How can we get him out? And so this first controversy we're going to see today, it's on the Sabbath. It starts with the Sabbath. But then it moves quickly to blasphemy. Our Lord was doing things on the Sabbath day that they thought wasn't right, wasn't in line with God's law. We're going to see that they were mixed up on that. But then Jesus says, identifies himself as the Son of God the Father, and for that, they want to kill him. And so what he does is he takes this, this episode of healing this sick man, this lame man, in this particular place to expose his redemptive plan, not only to show that he is indeed the Christ, but to show that the human heart resists that. We fight against it. We don't want someone else to be God but ourselves. In fact, look at the beginning of this passage in John chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. We get a context here, an historical setting, a real place, because this is a real event in human history. Verse 1, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there in Jerusalem by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. After this, after what? 
after Jesus had just engaged in this miraculous encounter with this royal servant from Capernaum. After this, our Lord heads down to Jerusalem. He's in Galilee. He heads down to Jerusalem for a feast. And and we don't know what feast it is, but there are pages and pages and pages written on what feast it is. We don't know. The best guess would be probably the Feast of Tabernacles sometime in October or likely one of the other two major feasts, but we don't know. Jesus, being faithful to the law of God, which commanded all males to go to these feasts, he, he went. And so he's in Jerusalem during this time. He goes to a pool at the Sheep Gate called Bethesda. And Bethesda means house of mercy. It's a place where people went because they thought they could get some healing. It was a big pool. There were five coverings on it. Likely the same sheep gate, if you remember when we did Nehemiah a ways back, which was a gate in the wall on the northeastern part of the city, which was really close to the temple courts. Okay, so this pool supposedly had healing powers, and it says the multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed, gathered there. And I thought to myself, what an incredible microcosm, what a, what a great snapshot of fallen man, blind, invalid, paralyzed, decrepit all around this pool, all wanting to be healed. And then here comes the Savior, and he brings himself into the mess in order to do a little bit of healing. Now, some of your Bibles, and i got to touch on this briefly, some of your Bibles have the end of verse 3 and then a verse 4. And it might say something like this. It says, a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. That should be there. The following is this, waiting for the water, waiting for the moving of the water. Verse 4. For an angel of the Lord went down at a certain season into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. You need to know that that's not in the earliest manuscripts. And it's not in your ESV. Notice your ESV goes from 3 to 5. And there's good reason for that. Most people believe that a scribe added it later based upon a superstition at that time. Um, And I would have to agree based upon my studies of this as well. There were, there were many pools in Jerusalem, and they were used for all different purposes, for bathing, for purification, for baptisms. Um, this particular pool probably had fresh water, so it would bubble up, and it seemed like living water. And some of you probably know this. There are, there are types of, of, of minerals in living water that can a- actually have medicinal effects to them. Certainly not the ability to heal a man after 38 years of, of paralysis, but you could see how that story might grow and how you might get some folklore coming forth from there. Um, And that, we believe, was added. Um, Better that you do not read the latter part of verse 3 and verse 4 in those translations if you have them as such. It was a superstitious people, and they they believed that a danger would come down and stir the water, and if you got in before first one, then you'd be healed from that. Um, It's not surprising given some of the other superstitions they had at that time. What we do see here is that Christ is coming in to heal someone. He's coming in to do that which they only believed could take place by this superstitious uh, angelic movement. And what he's going to do is he's going to heal a man. But he's not just going to heal the man for the sake of that man or the glory of God. He's going to heal that man to bring a rebuke upon rabbinical Judaism. He's going to actually come against the entire structure of the religious system in Israel at the time and certainly in Jerusalem. He's going to expose, listen closely, he's going to expose false religion. And that is the central theme of this passage, is to expose false religion. It's not about the healing of the man, although it's glorious, but he uses that to bring about the awareness that false religion leads to death. False religion hates God. So let's do that. Let's look at this by three things. One, a miraculous sign, and it was miraculous. Number two, a religion of slavery, and it was a religion of slavery that the Jews had come up with, not of God. And number three, a working Savior. A miraculous sign, a religion of slavery, a working of Savior. All right, are we still wide awake? We're all crystal clear. Our minds are sharp and sober. Say amen if you are like that. All right, good. Listen, if you've got to stretch a little bit and get up, there's room in the back. You can walk around. That's fine, all right? Just keep the blood going, that oxyhemoglobin in the head, and move around, all right? All right, here we go. A miraculous sign. What is the purpose of a sign? What is the purpose of a sign? Is it not to point us to someone or to something? In our family Bible time last night, I asked that, and every Saturday, like, ah, what's a sign? What's a sign? A sign, a street sign tells you where to go, right? When I'm driving home to Scotts Valley, it says 15 miles to Scotts Valley, 10 miles to Scotts Valley, 5 miles. It's telling me the direction to go. When I get to Scotts Valley, you don't drive around Scotts Valley saying, Scotts Valley, Scotts Valley, signs here. You don't. You're there. You've arrived. 
these signs that we see in the gospel accounts are to point us to Jesus Christ. That's why they're here, to point us to Him, that we might know that He has arrived and that by going to Him, we too can arrive in eternity with Him forever. The gospel of John has seven signs, seven miracles. It's the least of all the gospels, you know that. It's the least one, yet it was written last. John selectively picked seven miracles of Jesus out of the literally thousands that he and his apostles did. And they were in the thousands. This man was, was healing multitudes on a daily basis. And so every single one that he picked, you have to ask yourself, why did he pick this one? Each sign, every single sign, pointed to Christ. It pointed to him being the Son of God, that he was the Messiah. It pointed to his glory. It pointed to his power. It pointed to his Father. Each one. But they also served, especially in the Gospel of John, a secondary purpose, to unveil something else. And in this particular case, our Lord uses the sign, the miraculous healing of this this invalid at the pool of Bethesda to reveal, to unveil the false religion of Judaism at that time. And he was going to go straight at them. He was going to go at their false belief, their fierce allegiance in a man-made law They were no longer following the law of God. They had created an entire religion of their own, independent of the word of God. Look, I'll show you. Look at verse 5. One man was there. This is at the pool of Bethesda. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and, and knew he had already been there a long time, Jesus knew this, not because he knew the man, but because he's God. He said to him, do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. Verse 9. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed, and he walked. Now that was the Sabbath day. Jump down to verse 14 with me, please. Afterward, Jesus found this man in the temple, and he said to him, See, You are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, in terms of miracles, at this point in time in our Lord's ministry, and there's great debate where they were in his ministry, but he had performed sufficient miracles in such numbers that people were beginning to expect him to do that. He is now the miracle worker from Nazareth, and they were expecting him to do that. What's interesting is this miracle, although glorious, is not terribly extravagant. Even the miracle from last week, Do you remember Jesus healed that boy who was on his deathbed from 16 miles away without ever seeing him? He just said the word and he healed him. So even the miracle last week was a little more extravagant than this one. So why, of all the miracles that John the Apostle saw, why would he record this one? This one of of healing an invalid. Why is it here? What is John trying to show us? 38 years this man suffered. 38 years, this man was unable to take care of himself and was dependent upon the generosity of his family or other people to care for him. And then here comes Jesus, a complete stranger. The man obviously does not know who he is. And Jesus asks him this question that some of the commentators are really hard on. He says to the man, do you want to be healed? Yeah, does, right. Really? Do you want to be healed? The man said, 38 years I've been here. That's not the man's response. The reason that Jesus asked the question, the verb in the Greek doesn't convey this well. It is, do you want to be healed now? Do you want to be healed instantaneously? Christ is not asking him, do you want me to pick you up and carry you into this pool where you superstitiously believe that an angel will come down and make you well? Christ is saying, do you want me to heal you now? A complete and total healing. He's asking him, have you given up? He's asking him, do you have any hope in you? Is there any hope left of you being restored? Do you want me, Christ says to him, to heal you completely now? This man obviously did not understand what Jesus was asking, nor did he know who Jesus was. Because had he recognized Jesus, he said, oh, that's the miracle worker, and he would have asked him, heal me. But he didn't know. Instead, he says, "Listen, look at verse 7. He said, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. In other words, we don't, this man was an invalid for 38 years. We don't know how long he was at the pool of Bethesda but long enough that no one would help him. No one would help him. This man sat, and every time the water would stir, you can see him try to just grovel and make his way to it. But by the time he'd get there, someone else would jump in. 
No one had mercy on this man, but Christ does. Christ would come as a complete stranger to this man, and he says to him, you want to be healed? And notice that he gives him three imperatives that were, they had to be music to this man's ears. Look at verse 8. He says to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. Three imperatives. Get up, take up, and walk. Now those words, apart from Jesus enabling this man to do it, would have been absolutely wicked, would they not? I mean, this man cannot walk. How horrible to say, get up and walk. This man could not do this. But these were not wicked words. They were words that were filled with power. Look at verse 9. At once, at once, we have an instantaneous healing. The man was healed, and he took up his bed, and he walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. Hold that. We'll get back to it. This man did not have any physical therapy. This man did not have to go through months and months of rehabilitation to learn how to walk again. This man's legs hadn't functioned for 38 years, and he gets up, and the muscles are fine, and the tendons are fine, and the joints are fine, and he's off and walking. It's a miracle. By the power of God. Immediate, instantaneous. You say, well, it said there were multitudes there. Why, Why did he pick this man? Why did he go to this one? Of all the people that were there, of all the sick, the blind, the the crippled, why here? First, I want to show you this. One, Jesus picked him because he decided to pick him. And he's God, so he can. Jesus came into that place. He saw the multitudes, but he fixed his eyes on this man. He said, I'm going to love this one. I'm going to heal this one. I'm going to forgive the sins of this one. God must do this. God must come to us because we will not go to him We are dead. God must make us alive. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Listen to this in verse 5 of Ephesians 2. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ by grace, by grace, by grace you have been saved. Why this man? Pure grace. God wanted to love him. Christ wanted to save him. Secondly, I want you to see that this man had been ordained to be saved. This man had been ordained to be saved. He was going to be healed. He was going to be uh, forgiven of his sins. But this man had a greater purpose, a greater purpose in in the revealing of the redemption of Jesus Christ. Because this man was healed on what? On the Sabbath day. You say, well, what's the big deal of that? This man certainly knew, and we know Christ knew, that to, to bear a burden... To carry a mat would have been in direct violation to the laws of the Jewish religious leaders. And so Christ knew that when he told the man to pick up your your mat and walk, pick up your bed and walk, he knew he'd break the law. And the man knew it too, but he does it anyway, which is glorious. And so Jesus Christ is intentionally starting a dialogue. You can say he's stirring it up, and he does. He stirs the whole thing up. He's going to make a mess of things. Just as he did when he went the first time in the temple. He's going to make a mess of things now. But I want to show you something else. There's a third reason here. Jesus wants us to see that there is a connection between sin and our physical condition. There's a, there's a connection between that. And there's also a connection between Jesus Christ and his ability to heal us from this. He is the powerful one. Look at verse 14 again. Our man goes and he talks to the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders, and then he's in the temple, which is great, because that's where Christ finds him. And he should be. He's probably praising God. 38 years as an invalid, and now he's worshiping God in the temple. It says in verse 14, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. This isn't the central verse in the passage, but it is so extraordinary. We've got to sit on it for a little bit. You agree? I mean, it's a, it's a huge verse. We had a double healing taking place here. He healed the man physically, and he healed the man spiritually. He made the man walk again physically, and he enabled the man to walk again spiritually. This was not a temporary healing. Look, he says to him, see, you are well. In other words, this isn't a trick. You know, I didn't didn't do some magical trick. I didn't engage in the power of hypnosis. This isn't some wicked, hyper-suggestive thing like we see today and all the false healings today by all the false teachers today. Christ is saying, I am powerful, and I did heal you. He says, look at your legs. They're fine. You're walking all over the place. Not a trick. Very important. But then what he says next is extraordinary. Look. He says to the man, sin no more. 
Sin no more. This is a command he gives. And then he says that nothing worse may happen to you. In other words, Jesus is saying, not only did I heal your legs, but I've forgiven your sins. Not only did I restore you physically, but I've restored you spiritually. I've made you new. And the implication for us is profound, and there's debate on this. I mean, obviously the man was an invalid, and he was suffering because of sin in the world, right? All suffering, all all, all problems that we have physically, spiritually, sickness, disease, death, that's all a result of sin. So you can say, well, generally, yes. But I think that Christ is, is making a little, this a little more narrow and that he's tying this man's sin into his condition. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. In other words, look what's happened already as a result of sin. Look what's happened. Now the thoughts that must have been going through this man's mind at that moment if indeed that's what Christ was saying. All that time, all that suffering, all that wanting to be well, all those people that had to help me for 38 years as a result of my sin, as a result of my doing. Now, And Jesus isn't doing this to make him feel bad. He does want to sting his conscience. And he wants this man to know the seriousness of sin. Why? So that he will sin no more. He wants this man to get that he's been healed, but not just physically, and, but spiritually, so that this man will walk in righteousness. This man's been given a new start, a new birth. Christ wants that weight to be there, to not return to his old ways, but instead sin no more and pursue righteousness. Why? So nothing worse would happen to him. Now some may say, well, what worse could happen to the guy? 38 years as an invalid in that time? Before medical services, before the things we have today, before wheelchair access, 38 years, what could be worse? What could be worse than 38 years of being an invalid in the first century in Palestine? Hell is worse. Hell is infinitely worse. And that's exactly what Christ is talking about. Christ is not saying, sin no more so that nothing worse may happen to you like you may be an invalid and blind. He's saying, sin no more so that nothing worse may happen to you in that you don't end up in hell. Hell would be infinitely worse. Yes? Take your eyes down to verse 28. Same chapter, John 5. Go to verse 28. We'll, We'll get to this in detail, but this certainly ties in. Jesus said, an hour is coming. When all who are in the tombs will hear my voice, verse 29, they will come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now we know we're not saved by what we do, we're saved by God's grace through faith. But someone who persists in in willful, unrepentant, lifelong sin, Christ is saying here, that end is worse. That end is hell. An eternal state of suffering that we could argue would make this man's 38 years of paralysis seem joyful. So Christ says, sin no more. Nothing worse may befall you. He's given this man the ability to walk physically. He's given this man the ability to walk spiritually. Sin no more. Sin no more. Part of me wanted to stop here in this teaching because the teaching is so powerful. In John chapter 8, we'll get here as well, a very famous interaction between Jesus and the religious leaders who are going to try to stone a woman caught in adultery. You remember what Jesus says to her? In John chapter 8, verse 10, Jesus stood up and he said to her, Woman, where are they? Where are those who are going to persecute you? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No, Lord, because they had all departed. And then what did Jesus say to her? Neither do I condemn you. Go and what? Go and from now on sin no more. That is the imperative for the believer. You have been forgiven. Therefore what? Walk in righteousness. Stop the perpetual, daily, willful, unrepentant sin. Christ is not saying be perfect because you cannot be. Not yet. You will be made perfect. But he's saying take those sins that you continue in and bring them before the cross and confess them and turn from them lest something worse happen to you lest your end be eternal destruction. One of the commentators said this. It was wonderful. He said, Let every man who has by divine grace conquered some sinful propensity, some special weakness, some dangerous habit, remember that the phrase sin no more must ever ring in his ears as a warning. Amen? 
If God has delivered you from a sin, you praise him for that power and that grace, and then you remind yourself, sin no more. Don't turn back. Sin no more. Something worse happened to you. All right. So the first thing we see is the sign. It's a miraculous sign. It's pointing to Christ. It's pointing to his power to heal physically. It's pointing to his power to heal spiritually. It's calling us to sin no more. But this sign, as I said earlier, the gist of this, the the movement of the passage, is to unveil the hypocrisy of this false religion. So I want to look at the second point. The sign is going to to show us the religion of slavery, and it was a religion of slavery. Look at verse 8. Jesus said to him, to the man, get up, take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and he walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. And that, that verse turns the whole passage. And you now know why Jesus healed this man. Could Jesus have waited another day? I mean, he'd been like that for 38 years. He could have waited till the day after. He could have done it the day before. But he picked the Sabbath day to heal this man. The Sabbath day, which is defined in the Old Testament in several places, most clearly in Exodus chapter 20, verse 10, Pastor Kurt read it this morning, that for God's people, a day is set apart in the week to not work. And in the Old Testament, that, what that meant you didn't, do, you didn't do your normal, then it would have been the Sunday through Friday routine. So whatever you do during the week to work, he says, don't do that on the Sabbath day. On that day, I want you to rest. On that day, I want you to set it apart. Whatever you do to sustain your life, set that day apart. We know from Jeremiah 17, we know from Nehemiah 13, that that day also included the restriction of merchandising, marketing, the buying and selling of goods and services. But it was, it was a much more simple teaching than the rabbinical Jews at the time of Christ made it. God made the day Listen, he made it for man. He didn't make it for himself. He made it that we might six days work and then one day rest. We might not do what we do the normal six days. And on that day, we would worship him. And on that day, we would rejoice in him. And on that day, we would have joy and pleasure and fun in relaxation. It was to be a glorious day where we would serve people and love people and minister to people. When Jesus arrives on scene, the Jews had taken that glorious day of the Lord and they had so mangled it and so perverted it and it had become a day of slavery and the people hated it. This day that was supposed to be so glorious to God's people, the people hated. In fact, the Jews at that time, they had come up with 39, 39 specific types of labor that you could not do on the Sabbath day. And if you did, it was punishable by death. You want to know what some of those are? This is from the Mishnah Tractate Shabbat. This is a couple centuries later, but these were in place when Jesus was there. You could not sow, there was no sowing, no plowing, no reaping, no binding of sheaves, no threshing, no winnowing, no selecting, no grinding, no sifting, no kneading, no baking, no shearing of wool, no washing of wool, no beating of wool, no dyeing of wool. Wool, bad, don't do it. No spinning, no weaving. You cannot make two loops. You cannot... You cannot weave two threads, no separating two threads, no tying, no untying, no sewing of stitches, no tearing, no trapping, no slaughtering, no flaying, no tanning, no scraping hide, no marking hide, no cutting hide. You cannot write two or more letters. You cannot erase two or more letters. No, it is. You can laugh. This is hysterical. You cannot build. You cannot demolish. You cannot extinguish a fire. You cannot kindle a fire. You cannot put the finishing touches on any object. You cannot transport an object. This, here's where our man sinned. You ready? You cannot transport an object. This man had his bed between a private domain and a public domain or for a distance of four cubics within the public domain. Ugh. Is it any wonder they hated it? Is it any wonder they hated it? That was not in the Bible, by the way. These were all man-made laws that they came and they impressed it on the people. They pressed it on They enslaved them. And it was a day hated by the Jews because of the laws made by man. In fact, Jesus calls the Pharisees and the religious leaders, he calls them slave drivers. Matthew 23, verse 4, listen to what he says. He's talking to the Pharisees now, the, the makers of these laws. He says, they tie up heavy burdens hard to bear, 
and lay them on people's shoulder, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their own finger. And so Christ, he chose this Sabbath day. He commanded this man to get up and walk and carry his bed because he wanted to blow the whole thing up. I mean, he did. He wanted to take this entire system of 39 ridiculous man-made laws and he wanted to tear them to pieces because they were enslaving. And so, first time Christ goes to Jerusalem, he entered the temple and what did he do? Remember what he did the first time? He empties the temple. Second time to Jerusalem, he's making a name for himself. He comes right against the holy Sabbath day. He comes against the very foundation of their entire religious system, this holy day. Look at verse 10. So the Jews said to the man, the man had gone to them, the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Wrong response. Verse 11. But the man answered, he said to them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn and there a crowd and there was a crowd in the place. Otherwise, people would get, Jesus slipped away and a bunch of people had gathered and the man looks up and he says, I don't know who the man was. They knew exactly who it was, by the way. They wanted a testimony from this guy's mouth. They knew. They just wanted him to say it. But he didn't know and he legitimately did not know who the man was. Their response, I hope it turns your stomach. It is a wicked, heinous response. This man's an invalid for 38 years, likely well-known the first thing they want to know is, who told you to do what you're doing? Who told you to break the law? They were, they were not overcome with the mercy of God. They were not overcome with this man's healing. They were not praising God for the great work that had been done. This man had actually been healed. Instead, they were so fixed on their laws. It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your mat. This man is just so beautifully simple. He says, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. He says, you got issues? You go talk to the guy who made me walk after 38 years of being paralyzed. Talk to him because he's got some power and he certainly has some authority. He's not, by the way, throwing Jesus under the bus. That's a horrible rendering. He's not. He's, he's ascribing authority to Jesus Christ. That's what the sign is supposed to do. The sign is supposed to ascribe power and authority and majesty to the right one. That's Christ. And so this man's saying, he healed me. He's the one that told me that. He has power and authority. What I love is, this man is actually, he's talking to the Jews and he's saying, you think you have religious power. You think that you're in a position of authority. But this guy who I don't even know told me to walk and I'm walking. What are you going to do? I mean, it's an extraordinary display of power by Christ and a lack of power by the Jewish rulers at the time. For him to do this, by the way, was a dangerous thing. For him to go against the Jews like that, dangerous, life-threatening, certainly being excommunicated from the synagogue. Now, had this man been excommunicated while he was still an invalid, he would have died. So this is an amazing thing that he's doing. But their silence, it's, it's the, what they don't say that just reveals how warped their minds had become. They completely ignore this supernatural healing. Here, what a golden opportunity. Here this man for 38 years who had been an invalid is now standing in their presence. He's a living testimony of the power of God. They could have praised God. They could have sought Christ out to say, wow, how'd you do this? Why'd you do this? Where's this coming from? They could have asked a question like, are you really healed? You know, run around the temple a couple times. Let's see, is it real or is it a fake thing? They might have said something to him like, are you completely healed? They might have asked him how it happened. There were so many questions they could have asked, but they're silent and all they want to know is, who told you to carry your bed? Wrong question. Wrong question. They're not interested. They're not interested in this man. They're not interested in his well-being. They're not even interested in the power of God or Christ who has the power to do that. All they're interested in is their petty, pathetic, false, religious, man-made laws and making sure that everybody is coinciding and fitting in with that. Because if not, then they're going to get rid of them. Look at verse 13. Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in that place. And so this man, he, he speaks 
truthfully, I don't know. I don't know who this is. Jesus had set this man on a course to engage with these religious leaders in order to unveil simply that all false religions, obviously rabbinical Judaism, they're false and therefore they lead to death. They're false and therefore they lead to slavery. Every religion, every religion other than that in Jesus Christ and the gospel of grace and the cross itself is a false religion and it leads to slavery and death. Every one. Now, I know that's not a popular thing to say today, certainly in this culture and in this time, but that's what the Bible teaches. And that's what Christ wants to show us here. He's saying every religion, false Judaism, Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, Mormonism, Catholicism, listen closely, gospel-less Christianity, Christianity that has no gospel, it's a false religion. They all, without exception, they lead to slavery. Because every single one of those that I mentioned, in fact, every religion apart from the gospel of grace is based upon works, is a religion that says, if you do this, God will do that. If you're good, if you be really good, then God will save you. You do your works, you say your prayers, and make sure you say the saving prayer that will get you into heaven. You offer enough sacrifices, you go to church, you read your Bible, you help the poor, you do all your stuff, and you'll make yourself good enough for heaven. But if you don't, these religions say, if you pick up your mat and you walk on a day you're not supposed to, if you miss church, if you don't read your Bible, if you don't care from the poor, then you're going to hell. In other words, the entire system of salvation is based upon what we do, not what God has done in Christ. The entire thing. And that's why it enslaves people. False religion leads to slavery. And this is slavery of the soul because it is the consummate lie. It is the lie that started in the beginning. It comes straight out of hell and it tells you that you can save yourself. You don't need Christ. You don't need grace. You don't need a cross. You don't need a savior. The consummate lie from the very beginning and it will be the lie that goes all the way until the day Christ comes is you can save yourself. You can be good enough. You can earn your way into heaven. But we all know We all know, our consciences testify that you can't be good enough. I mean, deep down, you know, you can't be good at all. Paul was serious when he said in Romans chapter 3, there is no one good, no, not one. Apart from Jesus Christ, all we do is sin. You say, well, before I knew Christ, I did some good things. You may have done things that you thought were good. You may have done things that your parents thought were good or the culture thought were good, but you only did them for your own glory. You only did them for a system other than the grace and mercy and glory of God and therefore everything apart from Christ that we do is sinful. That means, my beloved, that you cannot be good enough to get into heaven because you can't be good at all. It's pretty hard to be good enough you can't be good at all. We agree with that? All right. The reason this is so hateful, this lie that permeates human history is in the South Bay. The reason it's so hateful is because it's impossible. No man, no woman can save himself. We need Christ. We need a Savior. We need a Savior. The Pharisees perpetuated this lie. In in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus said this of the Pharisees. By the way, when you're reading through the, the, the words of our Lord, the things he actually said with his mouth, his harshest words, his most brutal words are for the, the Pharisees, the ruling elite, the religious leaders, because he hated the lie. Because the lie led to death, and he knew that. And he loves people, and he loves souls. Listen to what he says in Matthew 23. These are the woes of the Pharisees. Matthew 23, 13, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. He says, You shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, For you neither enter yourselves, nor do you allow those who would enter to go in. They were peddlers of lies. Same same lie today coming out of, of churches and synagogues and mosques. Same lie. Different names, different faces, different people. Same lie. You don't need Christ. All of those false religions enslave us. Christ came to set us free. Christ came to bring 
grace that sets man free. Christ came to open the kingdom wide because it had been shut by religion and sin. And he says, no more. I'm going to open the door. He said in John chapter 8, 32, I came that you what? That you might know truth and in knowing truth what? You might be free, not enslaved. So you might know that my father is real, my father is holy, and my father is good. And because he's a good God, he will judge every sin. Christ says, I came that you might know that you cannot save yourself, that you are, in fact, a sinner through and through, that you might know this. Christ said, I came that you might know that you're dead. You're so dead, you think that you're alive. You're so dead, you think you're good. But you're so dead, I must breathe life into you, and I must make you alive. Christ sets us free that we might have desires to know him and follow him. Christ sets us free that we might know that a false religion leads to death, that it does, it kills us. It kills us spiritually, and that we might flee from it. Christ came that, that we might know that hell is populated by religious people. Hell, listen, saints, hell is populated by some of the most moral people that ever walked the planet. Populated by it, by the millions, because they did not put their faith in Jesus Christ. They put their faith in themselves and a false religion that only enslaves and leads to death, not just physical death, but eternal death. In 2315 of the Gospel of Matthew, another woe, he said to this, he said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel, this is an amazing verse, for you travel across sea and land to make a single convert, and when he becomes a convert, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. That's an amazing statement. They were converting people. People were coming to rabbinical Judaism. I would say people love man-made religion. Why? You can control it. When I was in the Catholic Church, this is fantastic. What are the rules? Here are the rules. Do the rules. If I do the rules I'm in, yes. Then who's God? We become God. We're in charge. We save ourselves. Becoming twice the children of hell, Jesus came to do the exact opposite. He came not to enslave us, but to set us free, to make us twice the children of heaven rather than hell. He had revealed this centuries earlier. I love this passage from Isaiah 61. Speaking of himself, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Jesus is now talking because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim the liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. So before I get to my last point, I want to ask you, are you bound by religion? And why are you here this morning? Are you here because you think, well, I have to go to church. If I go to church and I pray and I put a little money in and I read my Bible, then I will be saved? that's religion, that's slavery, that ends in death every time. I pray that you are here for only one reason, and that is because you love Jesus Christ, and you know him, and you want to praise him, and you want to worship him, because he set you free to do that. He set you free to do that. You were dead, and he's made you alive to worship him. All right, last point. I got to get there, right? Miraculous sign to point to Christ. An unveiling of this religion of slavery in every religion apart from the true religion which is in Christ is slavery. Last one I want to show you. We have a working Savior. Our Savior works. He's working now and it's a glorious thing. Look at, uh, look at verses 15 and following. <clears throat> the man went away so he had had the dialogue with Jesus Jesus said sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you verse 15 the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath he was working on the Sabbath verse 17 but Jesus answered them my father is working until now and I am working that's all Jesus says look at verse 18 this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Jesus tells this man to sin no more. And this man goes and he talks to, he goes back to the Jews to let them know that it was Jesus who healed him. Now so many, 
So many read this. I'm not going to be too hard on it because men that I love and respect, and many, maybe of you as well, they read this and they think, this guy's a turncoat. He's going back and he's telling on Jesus. I don't read it like that, and I'll show you why. What does he say when he goes back? He doesn't say, there he is. That's the guy who told me to pick up my mat. That's why I got in trouble. It's his fault. Go get him. He doesn't say that. He goes from Christ to these Jews, and he says, what? That's the man who healed me. He's the one that made me well. And we say, well, why would he do that? That's why Christ healed him, (laughs) right? Christ was revealing himself. The sign was pointing to Christ. This whole secondary purpose of the healing of this cripple would have fallen short had the Pharisees not realized it was Christ who did the work. Remember, he's stirring it up. Kind of hard to stir it up if they don't know who's doing the stirring. That's why Christ is doing this. And in fact, Christ may have told them, go back and tell them who made you well. Jesus wants the sign to be attached to his power, his authority, and his person. Right? A good sign will do that. A good sign points you in the right direction. And he wants it coming back to him. The sign that Christ wants pointing to him, he wants them to know that he does have the power to heal people. He wants them to know he does have the power to forgive sins. He wants them to know he has the power over the Sabbath. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He gave the Sabbath. Either way, Jesus refuses to submit to their ridiculous man-made laws. Look at verse 16. This is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. He was doing bad things. Bad, bad things on the Sabbath. What was he doing? What did Jesus do on the Sabbath that they hated so much? Well, he was loving people. He was ministering to people. He was feeding people. He was healing people. He was teaching people. Bad, bad things on this Sabbath day. Our Lord was showing acts of love and mercy on the Sabbath. What a day to extend them. But they hated him for it. They were persecuting him for it. There was another Sabbath day in Luke chapter 6. When Jesus entered the synagogue and he was teaching, and there was a man there whose right hand was withered. Remember this one? Even, I mean, right in their face. Verse 7, the scribes and the Pharisees, they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so they might find a reason to accuse him. How wicked! I mean, they're sitting there and they're going to see Jesus Christ, the Son of God, actually heal a man's withered hand. You know, not having a hand would have made it very difficult to work, and he's going to heal this man and restore him. And they're watching to see if they can get him. Come on, do the healing. Come on, come on. Gotcha. Their hearts are so dark. Jesus says in verse 8, he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. The, the tension's so extraordinary. And he rose and he stood there. And Jesus said to them, he looked down and he said, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or destroy it? They knew the answer. They knew God's law and they would not speak. Why? They were self-condemned. They would not speak. I imagine there's anger in Jesus' heart. Jesus said to them, after looking around at them, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury, and they discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. How are they going to kill him? Religion deceives us so deeply that it turns everything upside down. The Sabbath day was there for rest, for worship, for enjoyment, for doing good. Given by God to man, not by God for God. And yet the Jews had perverted it so much, they had made it a day of hate and slavery. Enslaving all those who were trying to exercise it to please God. And so our Lord, I love this, in our passage, our Lord presses their foolishness. And he does it in a remarkable way. I don't know if you caught this before in working through this passage. He, he presents to them two conundrums, two problems that they cannot answer. Look at the first one. Look at verse 17 again. He basically says, hey, guess what? My father's working on the Sabbath. Verse 17, Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. Jesus, he's not talking cryptically. There's nothing veiled. He's flat out saying, my father is working I am working. So the implicit question for them is what? Is the Father breaking the Sabbath? Is God the Father breaking the Sabbath? If the Father is working till now, the Father is always working, 
Jesus is saying to them, are you saying to me that God the Father, the creator of all that is unseen and seen and unseen, are you saying to me that my Father who gave us this law is violating the very law he gave? Because he's working. In fact, he works every day. He's always doing mercy, always doing grace, always healing, always restoring. That's what my Father does. Are you saying he's a lawbreaker? According to their false religion, the answer is what? Yes. So what do they do with God the Father? What ought these people do with him? Should they cast him out of the temple? Excommunicate him from the synagogue? Maybe they should kill him. They did. They did all those. God had been put out of the temple centuries before. He was excommunicated from their synagogues, and in a matter of months from this exact dialogue, they would kill God. And that's what religion does. False religion hates God. False religion hates the Son of God. It hates the teachings of God. It hates true worship. It hates true worship. It wants to destroy and tear apart. In fact, their hatred for Jesus is it's absurd. And we know that. We, this is, these are absurd behaviors. But you know what? They don't even hear the fact that they don't even hear this first problem created that the Father's working. Because as soon as Jesus said, My Father, they're done. They come to a complete halt as soon as he says, my father is working. Why? In verse 17, when he says, my father, in the Greek, it literally means the father of me. No one said that. Jews would refer to God as our father, as the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We are the father of them, and therefore he is our father collective. But no one said the father of me. You know what Jesus is saying. He's saying, yeah, yeah, he is the father of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and he is the father of this people, but he's my father personally, and I am his son intimately. In fact, I'm his only begotten son intimately. He's claiming, and they got this, he's claiming equality with God the Father. He says, my father's working. He's not in violation of the Sabbath, and I am working. I'm not in violation of the Sabbath. He's saying, my father is working, and I am working because my father and I are what? We are one. Two eternally distinct persons, and we're one in substance and glory and power. We're one. Look at verse 18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to what? To kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, this is interesting, in verse 16, it said they were, he was doing things against the Sabbath, and now he's trying to break it. That word, he's trying to dismantle and tear apart entirely their false religion. So they want to kill him for that. But infinitely more grievous in their eyes, the latter part of verse 18, he was even calling God his own father, look at this, so important, making himself equal with God. They got it. They got it. Do you know how many contemporary historians, anti-church, anti-Christ, try to say that Jesus was killed for reasons other than claiming to be God. Political reasons, social reasons, religious reasons. They killed him because he claimed to be God. Why did he claim to be God? Because he is God. They would not hear it. And at his trial, in Mark chapter 14, at his trial, standing before the Sanhedrin, the high priest asked him this. Listen closely. He said, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. They asked. He spoke the truth. He said, I am the Christ. And then he says, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power coming with the clouds of heaven. He says, not only am I God, I'm going to come again in all the glory of my Father. It should have terrified him. It did not. The high priest tore his garments and said, what further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all what? They all condemned him deserving of death and they killed him. How enslaved were they? How enslaving is religion? This was their Messiah. This is the man they had waited centuries to come and set them free. Go back and read the Psalms, the songs of the Psalter, which talk again and again about the coming of the glory of God, the coming of the Messiah, who would what? Who would set them free, the very man who came to set these people free from the death of their, their religion, they kill. He finally arrives. They're so blinded by their own false religion 
by their own hate, by their own making of people twice the children of hell and they themselves that they cannot see that Christ was there to make them sons and daughters of heaven. He was there to save them. So steeped were they. And religion does this. They were able to rationalize in their own minds the violation of God's clear law. What was that? Hatred, persecution, and murder of an innocent man. That's clearly delineated in the Old Testament. In fact, it's delineated multiple times in the Torah, the first five books, which they all knew. They're willing to believe, to be okay with violating that law while simultaneously seeing the love and the mercy, the miracles and the teaching of their own Messiah as deeds deserving of death. That's pure insanity. The sign offered by our Lord in this miracle was more than a simple healing of a man and setting him free from his physical limitations. It was a sign of judgment upon the slavery that the Jews, the religious leaders, had used to enslave God's people. It was a sign coming down upon them that they might be set free. And by God's grace, as we close, Jesus Christ gives us that same sign today. It's a sign of the cross. It's his death and resurrection that we are to look to to overcome all the foolish religion that we still engage in because saints truth be told many of us still saved by grace go back to works so many of us think that well he saved me by my grace but now i have to work really hard to stay in the grace you're saved by grace you're sanctified by grace and it'll be by grace you're glorified in the presence of god sinless forever by going to the cross christ died for your sins By rising from the dead, he sets you free from the power of sin and death. This is the great work that leads to freedom in him. And just as he freed that crippled man from the consequences of his sin, enabling that man to walk, so too in him, through the cross, through his death and resurrection, he can free you, he can free you to not be enslaved to your flesh and to sin and to the culture and the world but to be set free and to walk in him, to walk in righteousness, to hear him say to you, sin no more and you will sin no more. He's come this morning and he says to you, whether you want to hear it or not, do you want to be healed? He's asking you that. Do you want to be healed? If your answer is yes, through repentance and faith, through the cross of Jesus Christ, then Christ will heal you. He will make you whole. He will set you free from the slavery that you have enslaved yourself in. He will set you free from the power of sin and death and the grave so you have no worries of hell. Not only that, my beloved, he will will enable you by the power of his Holy Spirit not only to be saved from hell to heaven, but to walk this day and every day forth in his power and his strength. The same power that enabled that crippled man to walk is the same power that enabled that crippled man to sin no more. The same power that God used to redeem you is the same power he gives you daily to walk in righteousness. What a glorious command that Christ says, sin no more, sin no more. He would not give it if you could not, but he asks you to. He commands you to. He is your savior. He frees us from the deadly works of religion. He frees us from trying to save ourselves. And he he brings He brings Sabbath rest, real Sabbath rest in him. Christians, your Sabbath day is every day. Every day you rest in the Lord if you know Christ. Every day. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day the Lord has come to you and he says, do you want to be healed? Some of you may not know Christ. He's asking you that question. Do you want to be healed? The answer is yes. The answer is yes, that he might tell you to pick up your mat and walk. I pray that if you do not know Christ, you don't turn away from him this morning, that you don't seek another healing, that you don't go to some superstition or a pool that's stirred by angels, that you don't turn back to the flesh, you don't go back to an old religion that is a dead religion, you don't return to slavery 
If instead you embrace the true gospel of grace, that you repent of your sins and you turn to Christ and you rest in Christ. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has made himself known to you this morning by the proclamation of the gospel here in John chapter 5. He is the Savior of the world. He is your Savior. By his grace, you repent and believe and put all your trust and all your hope and I dare say your whole life in him. Who doesn't want to be free? Never met a man who says, I love slavery. Who doesn't want to be free? Freedom is found in Christ. Amen?